The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. February 21 edition of PFTPM, just five days away from our trip to Indianapolis for the Scouting Combine. We will be broadcasting there Tuesday through Friday of next week. Plenty of things still happening in the NFL, even though PFT Live is down. I am three for three now with PFT PMs during our one week where we take off after the season ends in advance of the full off-season experience followed by our four or five week hiatus it might be a little longer this year because of that thing that's happening in france called the olympics more details on that coming but regardless just one week off of pft live and then we'll be back for the duration of all of the things that'll be happening in the off-season and there will be many old business i got a great idea yesterday from someone about the paperclip conundrum and some of you aren't happy about the paperclip discussion I'll make it briefer today than yesterday when I had my idea of putting the one paperclip in a sea of 10,000 to 100,000 secretly dipped in the kind of dye they use to thwart bank robberies and it has to be wet in order for it to be seen and then you would find that one paperclip after the detective has 24 hours to figure out which paperclip is the magic one. This one's even better. I like this one. You find a light switch in your house or a socket in your house and you take off the cover, you insert the paper clip and drop it down through the drywall. You give the detective 24 hours to find it. And then you go to the spot where you know the paper clip fell and you cut the drywall, you reach in and you get the paper clip. And if it's for a hundred thousand dollars, so what if you've got a you know, redo your wall, you can afford it with $100,000 that you win. So that's my favorite one so far. If you have any other ideas, not that I need to tell you to let me know because you're letting me know the ideas even without the invitation. So go ahead and let me know if you have any other ideas. And that's it about paper clips for today. And I'd prefer to talk about paper clips and the first thing I want to talk about. I don't know what to say. I need to say something, but I don't know what to say about a world in which Human beings will pull out guns and start shooting each other because someone was looking at someone else. That's the word from the charging documents as a result of the Kansas City Super Bowl parade and rally shooting from one week ago today. Miles Simmons and I spent a half hour talking about this persistent issue of mass shootings in America, most of which result from, number one, weapons of war that arguably should not be available to anyone. And number two, those weapons getting in the hands of people who have no business owning anything that fires any type of projectile at another person. You put those two together and you get these incidents that we see time and time and time again. That's not what happened in Kansas City, according to the charging documents. A couple of people got into a fight, two groups apparently. I don't know those specifics. All I know is what I saw in the NBC News report last night. Somebody was looking at someone and someone else took offense to being looked at. How do you combat that? 
how do you, in a civilized society, what can you do to eliminate the risk in a public place where thousands will be gathered, somebody has a gun, somebody else has a gun, in a state where apparently the laws are pretty relaxed on carrying guns in public, and somebody looks at someone else in a way that someone else takes offense to, and it escalates. What can you do? What can you do? They say that if guns are outlawed, only outlaws will have guns. Well, outlaws and stupid people who don't know when not to use them. And this is a tale as old as time. My wife and I were talking about this yesterday, and I'm not going to name names because I still might know the person involved and or might be related to the person involved. But this was 33 years ago after I finished law school and before I started into my immersive preparation for the bar exam in 1991. We went to the beach for a long weekend. And while we were there, someone we know, we were with that person, talking to that person, and we heard that this person and his friends got into a fight. And well, well, you know, well what happened? Well, they were looking at us. And my wife and I were like, and? Well, they were looking at us. And somebody threw a shoe at someone? No, they, they were they were looking at us. That can be enough to set people off. And and it's not just a a male testosterone stupidity thing. I have a vivid recollection. When I was a kid, we used to go to my grandmother's house. Every Sunday, it's where I first started watching NFL football. It got me through the mandatory weekly visits to my grandparents. Because when you're 9, 10, 11 years old, I mean, I love you, Grandma and Grandpa, but, you know, I'd rather hang out with my friends. And I still remember sitting in the room where they had the TV, where I watched the games, the, the Pringles that were just stale enough that they screamed, these are the Pringles that Grandma and Grandpa would own, right? The 7-Up that was just a little flat, like only grandma and grandpa would have the the cocktail peanuts that were really salty like they added their own salt to them because they weren't salty enough in the first place and they were just kind of like greasy enough like where's that grease what why are they greasy anyway i digress i have a distinct recollection i'm going up the hill to their house they lived in ohio in the town where i was born up to their house my mother in the passenger seat a couple of girls roughly my age playing along the sidewalk. My mother apparently looked at them and one of them said to my mother, what are you looking at? And my mother responded without missing a beat, you dirty ass, which I still remember to this day and still laugh about from time to time. But, but my point is this, this indignity of being looked at, it, it, it's not just like young men who get upset about it. Everybody gets upset about it. We don't like being looked at by people who we think are looking at something that they shouldn't be looking at. And I, I, I understand it, but it's also exasperating that something that trivial, something that meaningless, something that should just be by mature individuals overlooked and forgotten could be the spark that results in guns being drawn and indiscriminately fired with a crowd around. It's madness. What, what can you do other than accept the fact that when you leave your home, there's a chance 
albeit small, hopefully, that you will encounter sheer and utter madness. And the only way to combat it is don't go out of your house, which I rarely do. Not for those reasons, but I'm even more inclined to stay home now. You just never know when it's going to go sideways. You never know when somebody is going to do something like that. You never know whether it's premeditated with an assault rifle or just a guy who's carrying around a, 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 a Glock, a pistol, any type of small handgun that's concealed somewhere, back of the pants, in the pocket, wherever, holster, however you do it. Somebody gets mad and out it comes and they start pulling the trigger, regardless of who's around. What can you do? It's, it, it really is insanity. And I don't know that there's anything, you know, last week, Miles and I tried to make semi-articulate pleas for our leaders to actually lead us out of this literal valley of death. I don't know that anybody, I, I hate to surrender to this mindset. I don't know that anybody can cure what happened last Wednesday. And it's just a damn shame. Anyway, hopefully we don't forget it. Hopefully we're vigilant in our own dealings when we make our decisions about where we go and what we do. I saw a report over the weekend that the folks in Detroit are very confident they have a plan in place for the next NFL mass gathering at the draft. I don't know how you can be so confident. You can use metal detectors to create a perimeter, but... At some point, there's a perimeter beyond which there aren't metal detectors. At some point, people will be gathering to go through the metal detectors. And having 800 plus law enforcement personnel present didn't help in Kansas City. So this is just part of our reality. It's part of what we have to deal with. It's part of the risk we assume when we leave our homes and the only way to combat it is stay home and watch football and eat Pringles that are a little stale and drink 7-Up that's a little flat and eat cocktail peanuts that are a little too salty. All right, and you can also, while you're doing that, wager legally on your phone in most states. I wrote something this morning about an effort by players to try to get the NFL to relax the rules against betting on other sports. And I really don't understand why the NFL lets players bet on other sports some places, but not others. And the best example of how crazy this all is, the idea that in the offseason, if you're participating in the workout program, you can stand outside the door to the team facility and legally wager on other sports. The minute you walk inside, it's an affront to the integrity of the game. That makes no sense. If you can bet on other sports in some places and at some times, but not other places and other times, it's not an affront to the integrity of the game when you're betting in the places where the league says you can't. They just feel compelled to create some weird barrier. This all flows from the fact that the NFL decided not to say when the Supreme Court opened the floodgates for legalized gambling, we are still going to shun it. We're going to have nothing to do with it. We're not going to let our owners own any company that has sportsbook operations. We're not going to accept any sponsorship money. We're not going to sell our data to any sportsbook company. We're going to slam the door. We're going to stay away from it. And we're going to tell our players to do the same in all forms, in all capacities, 
thou shalt not bet. That would be easy. But see, because the NFL decided to stuff its pockets full of cash, it had to come up with some way to balance that out. And remember, when it comes to gambling, there's no collective bargaining. The NFL has full control. It all flows from protecting the integrity of the game. The NFL can make whatever rules they want. And when does the NFL ever make rules that allow the players to do anything? That's what continues to confound me. And I think Chris Sims hit the nail on the head last year when we were talking about this. When we first became aware of the Jamison Williams suspension and others, oh, you bet on sports other than the NFL, but you did it in a place where you shouldn't, shame on you, you're suspended six games. They've since changed that penalty to four games. The sports books, Chris believes, and I have no reason to disbelieve him, they want young players with a lot of money to burn who love competition, who love that rush, and we all love it to some extent, to be able to spend, lose, wager, lose, betting on other sports. It's not an investment club. Calais Campbell had some quotes to Sports Business Journal that the players should have an opportunity to make some money as well. Well, maybe by sponsoring a sports book, but not by betting. Because over time, you're not going to make money. Over time, the house wins from two weeks ago in las vegas go into any of the casinos you look around man it's nice in here yeah it is and you know who paid for it these companies wouldn't exist if they didn't consistently win and win and win the owners wouldn't be taking full advantage some of them they won't tell us who of their ability to own up to five percent of a company that engages in sports betting operations if they didn't see it as a good investment why is it a good investment because the house always wins. So that's why the NFL is in this weird posture. And it doesn't care because there's a revenue goal of $25 billion per year by 2027. And this is helping the commissioner do what he said he was going to do. When he went to the NFL, he told himself he's going to be commissioner. He became commissioner. When he became commissioner, he said we're going to make $25 billion a year by 2027. And he is determined to get there hypocrisy, inconsistency, and flat-out ambiguity be damned. We're getting to $25 billion per year. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com, to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. 
One thing I feel like somebody at 345 Park Avenue is determined to do is get rid of the kickoff. I've been thinking about this a lot. Last year, they were pushing the idea of the XFL kickoff, which a lot of people don't like. I think it's kind of neat, primarily because the way it works, it just reminds me of the old electric football game before you turned it on, because the kicker is way behind the action. 20 players are five yards apart, and then you've got the guy who's receiving the kick, and the 20 players can't move until the ball is received by the player, which is the equivalent of turning the game on. And unlike the electric football game, when they all went like this, they actually, you know, move. But the idea is to reduce the high-speed collisions. That's all this is about. Taking out the opportunity for two players to run at each other, top speed, and make contact and trigger a potentially serious injury. Like Kevin Everett, like Eric Legrand at Rutgers. It could happen at any time. And I think what the league is trying to do here is eliminate the possibility of a catastrophic injury or death on the field. And that's a noble (laughs) aim. But, I mean, is there a way to still have the kickoff and address that concern? And I feel like the NFL is just sitting around waiting for someone to suggest an idea confident that there will be no idea suggested that the NFL deems to be good enough and that the end result is going to be no more kickoff, at least in the way that we know it. I was told a couple of weeks ago that there aren't 24 votes to shift from the current kickoff to the XFL model. Now, there also weren't 24 votes to allow Thursday night flexing either until the commissioners started taking arms and pulling them behind the back. After a little of that, they got 24 votes. So if he really wants it, he'll get it. And look, as Troy Vincent, the executive VP of football operations, has said, the current kickoff is a dead play. It's meaningless. No returns in the entirety of the Super Bowl. Through four quarters and nearly a full 15 minutes of overtime, not a single kickoff returned. They're all out of the end zone, put it to 25. So... Either they come up with some other way to do the kickoff without the potential for high-speed collisions, or they just say, you put the ball at the 25 and you start the drive. Well, what if you're trailing by multiple scores in the fourth quarter? Well, then you get this simulation of the onside kick, which is the other part of the XFL equation, fourth and 12, fourth and 15, fourth and whatever. And if you convert, you keep possession and off you go. And that has its own host of potential unintended consequences. Regardless, that would be the outcome. And what would disappear forever from the game would be the surprise onside kick, which doesn't happen a lot. But man, when it happens, it creates a lot of fun, creates a lot of excitement. And I know it's hard to recover onside kicks, but when it's a surprise, it makes it a little easier if you truly are able to dupe the other side into not realizing it's coming. That goes away. If they either put the ball at the 25 and go fourth and 15, or if they do this XFL style kickoff that would be supplemented by the ability to do fourth and 15, fourth and 12, if you're down multiple scores. So regardless, my point is this, they're meeting now, they're working out their proposals, their ideas for the league meeting at the end of March. There's clearly an agenda against the kickoff as it's currently constituted. They know that the current system is meaningless It's a waste of time. It's a waste of effort. 
So what are we going to do? Unless they come up with something else, I think the kickoff just goes away. And you put the ball at the 25 and start the drive. And if you're trailing by multiple scores with a certain amount of time left in the game, you can choose to go for it on a fourth and 15 type of play. I feel like that's coming as soon as this year because the current situation makes no sense. Just go ahead and get rid of it. And I think that's what they want us to do. I think it's a multi-year brainwashing effort by the league. You make the kickoff sufficiently irrelevant that it's the fans and the media who say, why don't you just get rid of this? Why don't we just save the headache, avoid this hollow, worthless play, and just start the drive at the 25? Oh, well, that's a good idea. Well, if you want it, wait, the customer's always right. I feel like that's where it's going. I feel like they're trying to manipulate us into the rest of us saying, just get rid of the kickoff and put the ball at the 25 and come up with a way for a team that is trying to close a multi-score deficit to come from behind late. That could come as soon as this year. See, we try to stay ahead of where the ball is. That could come as soon as this year. I haven't heard that, but I feel like that's the way things are lining up. I also feel like the hip drop tackle is going to be gone this year, but there are reasons to wonder whether or not they'll get the votes to do that. First of all, the union is against getting rid of the hip drop tackle, and the union is there to protect the health and safety of its members. And half of its members are the ones that could be tackled with a hip drop, and the other half are the ones that could do the tackling. Derek Brooks, who's one of the appeals officers, when folks are fined and would be one of the people having to sort out whether or not a fine imposed by the league against somebody who commits a hip drop tackle should be upheld or overturned. He talked to us about that during Super Bowl week. How do you really define it? How do you define it? How do you police it? How do you stop it? How do you draw the line? Horse collar is easy. And it's the same idea as the horse collar. The idea is you don't want guys to be pulled down in a way that results in excessive force landing on their legs and either breaking their ankles, tearing ligaments, tearing up a knee. They want to avoid those lower body injuries. It's going to be an interesting debate. And this is another one of those where it feels like the league wants it, but there are voices out there saying, does this really make sense? And look, I am completely in favor of anything that makes the game safer. And this is the balance the league has been trying to walk for the last 15 years. You make the game safer, but you try to do it in a way that doesn't fundamentally alter the nature of the game. And this has been going on forever. This goes back to the 70s when they started changing the rules to protect quarterbacks. You're trying to make the game safer. You're trying to ensure that the best players can play, but you still don't want football to be something other than football. This is the battleground. The kickoff and the hip drop tackle are the current battlegrounds as it relates to the ongoing efforts by the NFL to make the game as safe as it can be. Or I should say as reasonably safe as it can be because it is still an inherently unsafe game. It is still a game in which the participants take very real risks. They know them. They accept them. There was that period of time 10 years or so ago when Chris Borland retired. There was a group of people in the media who seemed to be rooting 
for football to collapse and more people to walk away, players to choose not to play at the NFL level. It hasn't really happened. It hasn't happened. Every once in a while, somebody would try to wedge a retirement into that narrative. Oh, it's another early retirement. Oh, oh, it's another player. Well, I mean, there will be some, but for the most part, there isn't this mass exodus away from professional football by players who understand the risks, accept the risks, and choose to proceed. It's not changing at this point. If it's not changing now, it never will. But the NFL still, I think, from the standpoint of just trying to find that right balance, how safe can we make the game and how can we do it in a way that doesn't dramatically change the game? Kickoff, hip drop tackle. Those are the two action areas for now. All right, let's answer some questions. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com, to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. I deliberately started a little late today. I have my weekly noon Eastern radio spot with the, the score in Chicago. So this is going to be 45 minutes because I got to be done within 45 minutes. All right. Questions. <laughs> NFL leads. NFL leads really wants to know about Dante Alighieri, who was once upon a time a personality connected to PFT. You say it's a long story. You, you say it's a long story. Good, sir. Well, since 2015 PFT Live and PFT PMs, that's an average of 15 hours a week, 750 hours over nearly 10 years, or 30 full days of my life, and endless hours of refreshing in the hamster wheel days. So I've put in the time, even on Tuesdays. <laughs> well done. Well done. Yes, I always respect people who put in the time on Tuesdays, NFL leads. It's still a long story. And it's one of those where I'd have to really sit down and think about what I should say what I shouldn't say, what I can say, what I can't say. And one of these days, maybe I will. I apologize, NFL leads, for not giving you more of a return for your impressive investment, even on Tuesdays. JC, outside of Mike McCarthy, which head coach is on the hottest seat this upcoming year? Well, let me think. For a lot of them, it depends on how the season goes. Now, McCarthy is the one who is clearly facing the most obvious winner-go-home mandate. He's in the last year of his contract. 
He isn't going to get an extension. If it is, it'll probably be Fugazi just to kind of take some of the steam out of this distraction and this impairment of his ability to properly lead in the locker room because the players can just look at him at some point and say, we're not listening to him anymore. He's not going to be here next year. I would say that Nick Sirianni is pretty damn close to being on a seat as hot as Mike McCarthy's. I would say that Matt Eberflus is on a pretty hot seat in Chicago. A lot of that depends on what they do. And that may be one of the reasons to trade Justin Fields and draft a new quarterback. It might buy the current regime a little more time because we got to see what this new quarterback can do. I would say that in any given year, Todd Bowles is a bad season away from being fired in Tampa. Dennis Allen seems to be on an increasingly hot seat in New Orleans, although they seem to be of the mindset that they're going to be patient and they're going to be tolerant and they want continuity and consistency with the Saints. Trying to think of some others that just jump out as this guy has a problem as soon as this year. Well, Robert Sala. How could I forget? I mean, look, everybody, as Aaron Rodgers has said, is on the hot seat. If it doesn't work this year, it's reset button time, and everybody's going to be gone in 2025. Joe Douglas, Robert Sala, the entire coaching staff, Aaron Rodgers, this is it. They're all in it together. And you know what? Sometimes that's the best way to do it because it prevents infighting. There's no reason to point fingers at someone else because you're not going to save your own ass by blaming someone else. You all either work together or you fail together, and that's the way it should be, frankly. That's the best way to do it. Have an attitude, have a mindset, have an approach where we either all rise or we all fall. And there's no reason, if the thing's starting to fall, to try to step over somebody else and save your own ass. Another one from JC, if Caleb Williams makes it clear that he doesn't want to go to Chicago, does that force the Bears to keep Justin Fields or will they take another quarterback with a high first round trade? Look, there's there's different ways they could do it. If Caleb Williams decides he doesn't want to go to the Bears and the Bears decide to blink, they could still use the first overall pick on Drake May or Jaden Daniels, or they could trade down a spot or two, not take Caleb Williams and take another quarterback. They could take a quarterback and keep Justin Fields. I mean, there are more permutations than you realize as to what could happen with the Bears. But, yeah, if they develop an affinity for Caleb Williams and they get the impression that Caleb Williams doesn't feel the same way about them, and there's a way to work this subtly and behind the scenes if you're Caleb Williams so you don't invite what would be unfair scrutiny and criticism by fans and media because I'm a firm believer, and I've been saying this for years, whoever takes a stand against the draft and says, I am not going to allow myself to be involuntarily placed with a team that I don't want to play with. Now, if it turns out that's where I wanted to go anyway, so be it. But I want to choose my destination just like I chose my destination in college. I will support you a thousand percent if that's mathematically possible. And it is. And whoever you are, I will support you because I think more of the best players. I mean, there's a point where you try to make that play and they're like, okay, fine. You're not good enough to do that. But every year we know the guys who are good enough to do it. And I think more players need to do it. It shouldn't be something that happens once every 20 years. It needs to be something that players do more often to push back against this idea that it's an, it's an honor and a privilege to be told, hey, you had a pretty good career. You're one of the most desirable players in this year's crop of, of incoming talent. 
you're going to go to Seattle, even though you've never been west of the Mississippi River. And you're going to live there for at least four years, five years, six years, seven years. Whether you want to or not, whether you want to play for that team or not, whether you want to work for that ownership group or not, whether you want to play for that coach or not, that's where you're going. It's an honor and a privilege. Don't question it because it's an honor and a privilege. Manuel Villa. As a fan of all three major sports leagues, it seems as though each has had talks of expansion to some degree. Which do you think expands first? I don't follow the other major sports leagues like I used to, so I don't know anything about talk of expansion. Hell, I still remember when baseball was talking about contraction 20, 25 years ago. I think legalized gambling and the money that flows from it creates an impetus to increase inventory. One way to increase inventory is to have more teams. You don't have to make the season longer. You just have more teams playing during the season that you already have. And I thought once the NFL realized the money that could be made from gambling, that it would want to expand and it might still want to expand. But the counter that is look at what happened in the 2023 season with all the injured quarterbacks. There aren't enough quarterbacks to go around, but the counter to that counter is the ratings were still the highest they've been since 2015, even with subpar quarterback play. We still tuned in to watch NFL football like nothing else that can gather an audience of millions. So Hey, look, bottom line is, and this is true in any setting, any business, any sport, anything that has an incentive to maximize profit, always follow the money. And if there's more money to be made with more teams, there will be more teams. Dr. J144, are you bullish or bearish on Bryce Young? I get why some say he struggled last year due to questionable ownership, but the owner isn't going anywhere. So why should we expect that to improve if that was the root cause? We don't know what the root cause was. Is it ownership? Is it coaching? What is it? Is it just too much pressure because they moved from number nine to number one? And, you know, this is a young kid. How much pressure are you going to put on this guy to be the savior of the franchise and justify the investment that was made? There's a lot of factors that can go into it. One of the reasons why I think the best talent in any given draft should be allowed to choose where they go. Maybe I don't want to go to a place where I feel like I'm going to have extra pressure. Maybe I don't want to go to a place where I get the vibe that's a little dysfunctional. Maybe I don't want to go to a place where the owner might be inclined to throw a drink on somebody during a game. I, I feel bad every time I say that, but I mean, the guy did it. It's not even alleged. It's not even disputed. He did it. Anyway, I, I'm, I'm wait and see. I've seen that some have come out and said, there's no way he's ever going to be an NFL quarterback. No way, no how. I mean, I think that's a little extreme. I think that's a little excessive. Let's see what the guy does with a new coaching staff. Let's see how his career plays out. And even if it goes down the toilet, we can't rule out the, the possibility that if he had started his career somewhere else, it would have gone very differently for him. I think that's one of the most overlooked factors when we assess whether or not quarterbacks are busts, especially quarterbacks. If you had gone somewhere else instead of where you went, how different would your career have been? And the one that I always think of, and I know I've said this before, I apologize for being repetitive, but if Donovan McNabb had gone to the Bengals and Achilles Smith had gone to the Eagles in 1999, would Achilles Smith have become a borderline Hall of Famer who went to multiple NFC championships and won Super Bowl? And would Donovan McNabb has, have washed out of the league as quickly as he did? I don't know. If I was going to do alternate universe, I'd probably come up with something else. 
But I do think of that. And I think that it's a factor that gets overlooked when it comes to this very binary boom or bust choice for quarterbacks. Brock Bollinger, could the NFLPA ever negotiate salary arbitration, a model that the NLB and NHL use into a CBA as an alternative to the franchise tag? Look, I appreciate the creativity. I appreciate the thoughts. The NFL is never, ever, ever giving up the franchise tag, ever. They're never giving up the franchise tag. It allows them to keep their best player, who happens to be a free agent in any given year from hitting the market. And it also allows them to control the overall market because the best players never get to unrestricted free agency and stretch that rubber band as far as it possibly can go with the dollars that would be obtained if that player is available to anyone who wants to sign him. Manuel Villa, I might be in the minority, but how can Devin Hester be in the Hall of Fame? I recognize he's the best returner of all time, but how many times did he really impact the game versus other worthy candidates? I can see an argument for him, but he shouldn't be in over other players. Look, I I became, you could say, very cynical about the Hall of Fame. I tend to say it's practical. Once you go there enough times, you realize at some point this is a business like anything else and every year unlike the baseball hall of fame which if it sees fit will put no one in every year they need a certain number of new hall of fame busts they need to preserve that one weekend out of the year where canton ohio is the epicenter of professional football where thousands of people come to town and spend money in the restaurants, and buy rooms at the hotels, and show up for this, and show up for that, and here's a parade, and here's the ceremony, and here's the game. They always pick the game in a way that's relevant to the class that's coming in, because then those fans are going to come for the induction ceremony, come a couple of days early to go to the game. Hey, we're going anyway. We get to see our favorite team play. We're going to see one of our favorite players get inducted. Oh, and he played for that team and they're playing two nights earlier. Let's make sure we make a four-day weekend out of it. It is a business. I don't know how thriving it is, but you take away that weekend and it's probably bankrupt. So every year you're going to have seven, eight, nine busts go into the Hall of Fame. And one of the biggest challenges, and I've never been a voter, I don't want to be a voter, and there's no way they're ever going to ask me to be a voter on who gets into the Hall of Fame. How do you compare apples and oranges? How do you compare all these different shapes and sizes and degrees of relevance? How do you compare a Devin Hester? Is it good enough to just be the very best who ever did what you did, even if you still make less of an impact than the guy who was pretty damn good, but not the very best at a far more important position, like a quarterback. It's a very political process. Trust me. I've heard enough about the efforts of certain players to get in and the things they do and the, the, you know, the, the ears they bend, the cases they make to try to get people in. They change the rules all the time whenever they feel like it. I'm just down on the whole thing. It's a museum that would run out of money if they didn't have that weekend every year where six, seven, eight, nine busts are put in and all those people show up for the parties, the celebrations, the hotel rooms and the restaurants. And that makes me not really care. I, I, this is my fundamental point about the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Football is the ultimate team sport. 
Why do we get so twisted up about which individuals go into this Hall of Fame? It's a team sport. We're supposed to be recognizing the greatness of putting we above me. But then it's time for me to get in the Hall of Fame. Now, the whole thing just seems weird to me. And the, the more I cover the NFL, the less affinity I have for anything related, frankly, to the Hall of Fame. Clive Pack with Mahomes already having three rings. How long before he surpasses Tom Brady? I don't know, but I think he will. Now, he needs to have a team around him. He needs to have good coaching. He needs to have good front office. But he's only going to get better. We've seen him for six years. He's only going to get better as he gets more experience. That's where he is craving to go, to the spot where you'll walk up to the line and you know exactly what the defense is. You know exactly where the receiver is going to be open. He's going to get to the point where he doesn't have to run around and make magic. He's going to become a more boring player at some point because he's going to get the ball and he's going to get rid of the ball, just like Brady late in his career. Get the ball, get rid of the ball. I know what this defense is. I know where the open receiver is going to be. Boom, gone, out. It's how you preserve your career. You take fewer hits as you get older. And at some point, Mahomes will lose the ability to run around like he does. His arm will still be there. His brain will be even better because he will have seen more. And he's only going to get better. He's got three in six years as a starter. I expect him to catch Tom Brady at some point. And maybe the ultimate goal for Mahomes is 10. Maybe. Won't say it out loud, but maybe, maybe, maybe. He's thinking to be the guy who gets double digits. And I don't think there'll ever be anybody else who does. All right. I just got a few more minutes looking for some good ones. Dr. J144, Bill Belichick to San Francisco's defensive coordinator. Belichick leaves in a year to be head coach again and Sala returns. I don't expect the Jets to be good next year. Doesn't that scenario make too much sense? Kyle and Lynch should be calling Belichick, right? Look, I'm a firm believer that Kyle Shanahan didn't fire Steve Wilkes as defensive coordinator without knowing what he's going to do next. It's been very quiet since then, which tells me Kyle knows who he's going to get. That person already knew that they were going to get it, and it's just a matter of time before they pull the sheet off of the announcement. Tim Kawakami, the athletic, reported yesterday that it could be soon. Well, it needs to be soon because the scouting combine is next week. We heard, just based on league chatter, there's a thought it's going to be Brandon Staley, the former Chargers coach. 49ers fans don't really like that. I think it would be great if it was Belichick. Or, look, you're running the Seattle defense. Get the godfather of the Seattle defense. Get Pete Carroll to come be the defensive coordinator. That would be something. This one from Ollie with rugby in the Six Nations using smart gum shields. They call mouth guards gum shields in the U.K., to measure the G-forces seen in impacts and using this to determine if a player needs a concussion test. Why is that? Why is it that in the NFL, gum shields, mouth guards aren't even compulsory? Look, there's a lot there. And I've begun the process of getting an update from the league about research that's being done as to these smart mouth guards that measure impact. They were doing something with it a couple of years ago. I want to see where it stands. But I've gotten several different emails just today. Apparently, there was some reporting done by the BBC about mouth guards, gum shields that measure these impacts in rugby. And there's a dispute and a debate over what you do with different data. I want to see what the NFL is doing. But I agree. Mouth guards should be mandatory. They should be. And it should be real mouth guards. You, you see that thing that Patrick Mahomes wears? 
I mean, it there's nothing to it. What kind of protection does that thing really even provide? If he gets hit square in the mouth, is that thing going to keep him from losing teeth? I ain't so sure of that. Oh, uh, let's see. Got to wrap this up soon. Tomas Pena. What are the biggest challenges in the process of writing a book? Yeah, I saw this one earlier. And I don't know how much I've talked about this here. You know, one of the things I decided during the pandemic was to channel the literally millions of words I've written over the years covering football into something that would have more relevance than the stories I write at PFT. Because anything I write today, by tomorrow, for the most part, really doesn't mean anything. What means something tomorrow is what I write tomorrow. And then by the next day, what's meaningful is what you write that day. It's every day, every day, every day. And I developed the capacity without even realizing it by doing this for as long as I have. And when it's time to sit down and write something else, man, I can write fast. I mean, I can crank it out. It might not be good, but I can crank it out. So I started writing during the pandemic. I've written, I think, eight different novels that are in different forms of completion. Two of them are available, obviously, Father of Mine and On Our Way Home, working on the Father of Mine sequel now. I love the process because I don't get writer's block. I just sit down and it just goes. And sometimes it's like an out-of-body thing where it's just the story is revealing itself to me and I'm just reading it as the words show up. And I love that feeling. The hardest part, I think, is taking something that is almost final and making it final. Ironing out all of the remaining kinks, any potential issues with the plot. Is there something that doesn't really hold up? Does this make sense? Does it ring true? Does all the dialogue seem like the way these specific people would talk to each other? And then just making sure there isn't a single glitch, a single typo, a single word or exclamation point or other punctuation mark that's in the wrong place? Is every paragraph aligned right? Does every page look right? That process of fully and finally landing the plane requires a lot of focus and you kind of have to step away from the creative side and it becomes very mechanical. That's the hardest part. But that's the part that's closest to the payoff of finally saying this one's done. Let's focus on the next one. So there will be Plenty of these things. I'm not sure what format they're going to be available in, where I sell them through the website, whether I try to get them published. I like having full control over the process. I like having that direct pipeline to you. But but I have realized, because Playmakers was published by Hachette and it was available everywhere. There really is something to be said for having your books in bookstores. There really are still a lot of bookstores. And as the commissioner said, I think when it relates to streaming, you got to fish where the fish are. And there is value in that. So we'll see how it plays out. All right, I think I have to go. I'm looking for one more. Oh, Zachary Holden, one of the one of my favorite topics, one of my favorite crusades, as the case may be. Is the NFL draft considered an antitrust violation that the CBA permits? If so, can a prospective draftee challenge that in court or can join or not join the NFLPA to avoid agreeing to the CBA? Thanks. You're welcome. Uh, well, I haven't answered yet. You may not like the answer, but no, this is when... I first had that aha moment that the draft itself is anti-American and should go away. During the lockout in 2011, Jeffrey Kessler, who represented the union, made the argument that in the absence of 
a CBA, the draft is an antitrust violation. And it is. It's 32 companies coming together, controlling their workforce. Just think, if you wanted to take a job after school working at Taco Bell, and you had your heart set on working at Taco Bell, but there was a local group of fast food restaurants that drafted you. So you got drafted to go work at McDonald's. I mean, that would be an antitrust violation if they put up barriers as to how the workforce would be distributed. The reason they can do it is because it is a multi-employer collective bargaining unit. That's why the first thing that the union does when there's a lockout is shuts down. Because if the union is out of the equation, everything the 32 teams do as it relates to player acquisition, salary cap, draft, is an antitrust violation. There's no question about it. That's why the case from 2010, it was called American Needle. That's the case that ultimately ruled from the Supreme Court's perspective that the NFL is 32 independent businesses. That changed everything. So that's why the draft can happen. The union allows it to happen. The existence of the union allows it to happen. Without the union, it would be an antitrust violation. And I continue to submit, it is fundamentally anti-American. Even though it's an honor and a privilege, you've all been brainwashed. You've all been brainwashed. On that note, thanks for some of your time. Maybe I've brainwashed you back. Maybe I'm trying. It's just a long-term process. Come back over to the to the to the to the good side, to the right side, to the side that favors full and complete freedoms by all of us to live wherever we choose and work wherever we choose. All right, I choose to shut up now because I got something else I gotta do. We'll possibly do it again tomorrow. PFTPM signing off. Thanks as always for some of your time. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.